main feeling I have sitting there is I love, I love life. I love you. I love having my assistant, John Bloom, over here, and I love having my friends, Mike and Joy, in partnership in the evening. I love looking out there and seeing a table of Bethlehem friends smiling back at me. I love having pastors over here, a couple of Rogers, and I'll bet there's some others out there that I, I know. I just sit here and I say, this is incredible. This is heaven. If, if it didn't sound like a beer commercial, I'd say it doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord, the few minutes that we're going to take now to reflect, would you draw near? Relationships are so precious, Lord. They're so precious. Children are precious. Old people are precious. Brothers and sisters in Christ that you don't recognize are precious. Life is precious. And I pray that you would shape us by true, biblical, God-centered values tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got a new mission statement at our church. It goes like this. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. And it's my mission statement. And so anytime I get an invitation to do things like this, I pour the invitation through the sieve of the mission statement, and if it falls through, I seriously pray about it and consider it. And if it doesn't fall through, and I can't make it a means of spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, then I don't do it. It's not what I'm about at Bethlehem Baptist Church. So you uh, need to know that that's why I'm here tonight, and it will help you understand some of the focuses that I have. And the reason this opportunity fell through the sieve is because human beings are created in the image of God. And the most awesome thing I can imagine saying about any of you in this room, even if there are a few in the womb in this room, I speak of you. You are created in the image of God, which means, this is my understanding of that text in Genesis 127, that you were all created unlike any other being on the earth, to image forth God. You were created to image forth God. Like a mirror images forth that which stands before it. The mirror is not very important if it isn't clear enough to do its job in imaging forth what stands before it. And human beings are no big deal if they turn the mirror side of their life around which is what happened at the fall, around with the back up to God, casting a long shadow with God's glory, no longer reflecting it, but casting a shadow and looking at the shape of the mirror on the ground and falling in love with it and worshiping it for the rest of history. That's sin. But the glory that I hear these stories is that that mirror, you can go up to that mirror and say, hey, mirror, you made to turn around, called repentance. You're made to turn around and face the glory, not put the glory behind you, cast a shadow and love the shadow. Watch, try it. Look, look over your shoulder. As I read Amnion stuff, it's a kind of look over your shoulder ministry. Look what you are missing, what you're walking away from, what you've forsaken and abandoned. 
And people, like we've just heard, look, and God's worth it. And so, if Amnion is successful in its mission, then it has the mission of my church to spread a passion for the supremacy of God. I don't know who wrote your mission statement, but the one that was sent to me had big glory of God right at the next one, and evangelistic fervor was the one right after that. And I felt, I don't know too much about Amnion, but I, I believe in this. So I'm here to spread that passion with you. The theme tonight, love them both. The both meaning, I assume, the parents, mom and dad in crisis, and the baby. whose Life is in peril. Love them both is also significant in relation to the mission statement because according to Jesus in Matthew 5.16, he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds. That's just another way of saying love. That they may see your love and give glory to your Father in heaven. And whenever I hear that, that's my mission. Where can I go to do that? And Jesus said, well, I'll tell you where to go. Go. Where you can advance good deeds. Go where you can advance love. Because when love abounds, people see God and they give glory to God. And so if this theme tonight, love them both, happens because of this night, my mission will happen. So how could I not come? So now you know why I'm here. Now the way I want to approach the few minutes that we'll take together is this. I'm going to get to the Bible eventually and uh, show you something really crucial about love and about uh, facing some of the things I read in one of Janice's article are obstacles to love. But every speaker shows up among strangers from somewhere with all kinds of influences feeding into his life, not by accident, but by the wonderful sovereign providence of God. And therefore, like we see in Hebrews 11, God displays his truth and his glory, not just through exposition of written word, but also through living people who tell their stories like we just heard. That's God showing up and delivering his truth. So I want to tell you out of what I'm coming tonight a little bit, and it will lead into some biblical passages that I'll close with in a little bit. So. Here are things I'm coming out of that are shaping me these years and days. First, five blocks from my house are Midwest Health Center for Women and the Meadowbrook Clinic. Now, Meadowbrook used to be over at at Methodist Hospital. Now, it's three floors up in the office building beside Elliott Park, which I walk by every day on the way to my church. Over half the abortions in this state are done in that building, in those two clinics. They are big, powerful, money-making clinics, and they're right in my backyard. And just so you'll know where I am on this issue of, of, of abortion, when I sat with my wife in Pizza in August of 1988 and saw the first rescue in Atlanta, I can remember the pew, I remember the mood, I don't remember whether it was pepperoni or sausage, But I looked at her and I looked up at that rescue going on 
on national news and I said, that's right. That's right. And for the next three years, we did them. And I was sued by Midwest Health Center and spent three days in jail out at the Hammond County Correctional Facility and led my church into that whole movement and through that movement. And it was right. And it was good. And to this day, I feel it was used of the Lord. And one of the reasons it is not yet happening is because it is very difficult to control the kind of misuses of it that happen. But I want you to know that coming through that and now watching all kinds of pro-life spin-offs and, and the anti being upped around the country, I love CPCs. I love CareNet. Now, nothing was said about CareNet tonight, but you're a part of CareNet. CareNet is a system of 450 crisis pregnancy centers headed up by Guy Condon. And I like Guy Condon. I don't know him, but I read his stuff. It comes across my table. And when I read that, you're one of those, part of it. I said, oh, there's another plus for, for Amnion. They're part of a bigger, a bigger thing out there. And Guy's vision for multiplying these crisis pregnancy centers that love them both throughout the country is a glorious vision. And I really encourage you to get behind it tonight with your money and with your volunteer efforts. That's one thing. My setting downtown next to these awful centers that I'm praying. I, ha I have a list of their staff in my prayer folder at home. And I pray for them almost every day as I flip through my prayer folder. And uh, I'm just asking the Lord. Now, I'm here and I'm close by. What do you want me to do? You want me to go over there and knock on the door? You want me to call him up? I'm willing. I'll do that. So you pray for me. If if you think that's God's will for me to call up the, the administrator, Jerry Rasmussen of Midwest Health Center, instead of just praying for her, say, I'm a pastor down the street. Could I talk? And she'll probably say, down the street where? Bethlehem. No. I remember what they did. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Because you know the stories of these women clinic directors who have been converted across the country. That's owing to personal contact. It's not owing to a poster. It's owing to a pastor or somebody moving in and saying, you know, there's a God and he can forgive and surely you don't like this business. And over time, boom, transformation. So pray for me. That's number one. Number two Tuesday night, I visited this little baby's parents that Mike was telling you about as she was in labor. We knew that the liver was outside the body. We knew that the diaphragm was all out of whack. We knew that the heart was all over to one side, but we were still fighting in prayer for this baby's life. And it was born at 6 o'clock Tuesday night. Immediately went on to a very aggressive Treatment to save its life, and it died at 6 o'clock the next morning. Well, at 10.30 that night, I went down there, and we dedicated the baby to the Lord. And the words of dedication that we use at my church go like this. Um, Ashley, Hope, together with your parents who love you dearly, and this people, we have about a dozen staying there in the intensive care unit, this people who care about the outcome of your faith. I put my hand on the baby. I dedicate you to God, surrendering together with them all worldly claims, 
on your life. I say those words over every baby we dedicate. I'll dedicate 15 this Sunday at Bethlehem. And every one, the parents will surrender all worldly claims on their life. Well, it never have had such meaning for me as, as I lay my hand and, and the baby had about, um, what, at 1030, about eight hours to go. And they surrendered the baby up to the Lord. But here's the significance of that. Have you ever been in a neonatal intensive care unit? It is a sight to behold. I mean, these are rocket scientist nurses in there. How they begin to know what end is up, I have no idea. The machinery is so phenomenally advanced and the money invested must be simply stunning. I'm so glad that Rod, Rob and Jan have insurance because the 12-hour life probably is going to cost them $30,000, you know. Um, and as I looked, a couple of things happened. Rob said, lift up that blanket. So I walk over to this little shielded thing and I lift up the blanket. And is that a baby? About this long, little head about that big around, one and one half pounds, 24 weeks. And the nurse said, it's all right. It's all right. One and a half pounds. And there was another one right down the, the line. Now, some of you remember in the Tribune a couple of years ago, there was an article about one of those babies. They're almost a dime a dozen now. Amazing. And in the same newspaper, the big discussion about St. Paul Ramsey's late-term abortions. And they kill babies bigger than that at St. Paul Ramsey across town. And on this one weekend, both of them were in the newspaper. And I wrote a letter. I've never had a letter published in the Minneapolis Tribune. Ever. I write. I used to write them all the time. And I gave up. But I wrote and I said, do you realize that on page such and such, you reported about this phenomenon down at Children's Health Center. And on this page, you dealt with the discussion of this uh, fetus over at. Did you know that this fetus is older and bigger than this? Of course, they knew that. But you know what's encouraging and discouraging about this? The encouraging part is that all over America in hospitals, Millions of dollars are poured into saving preemies' lives. Which means there's some believers out there in life. Parents, namely. And all over this country, there's a multi-billion dollar industry of taking babies' lives. And you know what the difference is? This is the discouraging part. You know what the difference is? The will. The will choice of the mother or mother and father. And if you ponder the significance of that, here's millions of dollars being poured into saving that baby, and here's dollars being spent to kill that baby, and the difference resides not at all in the baby. It's not created an image of God issue. It's not is a healthy issue. It's not a nature issue it is a superimpose another person's will issue. And just think that through about the awful implications of the distinction between life and death hanging not on anything in the being, but only in the will of a power broker. That's frightening. And that's where we are. It is an insane place to be as a culture. When the history is written, 
and the CPCs have won the day, the history books will say, how did those generations ever live with those contradictions? How did they ever survive those kinds of things? And so I I, uh, am thrilled that Amnion bases its devotion to life not on the basis of the will to life in Janice Lamont. Her will is quite irrelevant in this. The issue is, who are they? Is there a being with a certain worth or value inherent from being in the image of God? So the amnion is a God issue. And to state that right up front is a glorious thing to me. And it's the kind of thing I want to be behind. Here's the third thing I'm coming out of. I've got a friend. His name is John Enzer. He lives in Boston. I taught John when I was a teacher back at Bethel College in the mid to late 70s. He was a good student, quite outspoken. And he went to seminary at Gordon-Conwell. And then he took a little pastorate in uh, Boston. And his church went nowhere. There was a lot of opposition. He's aggressive. He's creative. He's progressive. And the church was old and stuck in the mud and didn't want to do anything. And and it, it fell apart. And in the meantime, he'd gotten involved in pro-life activity. And today, John is the head of a crisis pregnancy center that has two branches called A Woman's Concern. And it is the most active crisis pregnancy center in New England. To show you the scope and the energy of this place, he has a $30,000 phone book ad in front of all the abortion clinics. In the phone book. And he, taught, he wrote me an email last week. There's a reason I'm thinking of him because he's so fresh in my mind. He's been telling me about things that are going on out there in New England. They said, there's a war, John. There's a war. And we aim to win it. We aim to win it. And so he, he's a fundraiser. He goes out and he tells stories. He's such a, a radical, wild-eyed person that people uh, say, well, yeah, I can't do it, but John will do it. You know, so give him the money, you know. And uh, so he he can get $30,000 to put in a phone book ad. Well, in dialoguing with him about his crisis pregnancy center, I have learned awful things. There's awful things that make crisis pregnancy centers like Amnion so wonderful. One of the things I've learned is how much lying goes on in the abortion industry. I hate lying. I love truth. I love people who speak the truth straight up. Don't pull any punches. Say it like it is. Even if it's difficult, just do it. And people that pull punches and caricature other views and manipulate data, ooh, I just, ooh, I don't like that. Well, the, he, he's told me stories about how typical it is for them to tell a young woman you're pregnant when she's not and do a $750 abortion on her. And the reason they know it is because time and time again, between the time she gets the test, she comes to them, to a woman's concern. They do another test. She's not pregnant. Here's, here's an illustration. Well, he, he, um, here in this, this little letter he sent me, there's a situation where a woman goes in to have a, a, a pregnancy test and they say, you're pregnant. 
And she's not ready. She goes home. She struggles. She comes back. They put her on the table and said, let me do a, a ultrasound first. And say, so just an ultrasound. She said, oh, ma'am, you've got twins. We'll need another $500. And she starts crying. And she can't, didn't have the money. And so she leaves. And there's a man standing outside from a woman's concern. Didn't have a bloody poster this time. Just had some pamphlets. And said, can we be any help? And she said, I don't know. Anyway, they, she wound up going. She's not even pregnant. I hate lies. It's a lying industry. It's built on lies. How could it not lie? So that's one thing about it that just blows my mind away. Another is, and this has been emphasized tonight and is so good, that he said, he said, John, the biggest obstacle to raising funds in New England is that as I go to churches, they say it's not evangelism. John, I will go up against any pastor in New England with the number of people I've led to Christ. He said, it is the most front-line evangelism of any ministry I know about in New England. And as I'm listening and watching here, it, it seems like that's the way it is. Here is here's an institution, Crisis Pregnancy Center, thousands of them across the country. And women who don't know they need the gospel, but know they need another kind of help, Show up, and then you've got Janice Lamont types and Joanne types who say there are other realities. Let's talk. This is evangelism. And, and he said, he said to me when he emailed me the other day, he said, tell those people that they don't have to make that choice in their money or in their time. At least not if the Crisis Pregnancy Center is doing what it ought to be doing. I don't have the time, but he sent me two. I printed out these email messages that I could just summarize uh, this one where he he married two people who've been living together for nine years who were intercepted by a loving counselor from a woman's concern and said, you don't need to do that. And they said, our marriage is so rotten. We could never support kids. And they said, we can help marriages, too. And they said, how can you do that? Well, we got a, a leader named John Enzer. <laughs> and, and he'll he'll meet with you. And John says, oh, thank you. You know, and he meets with these people. He's a Muslim. And she's a nominal Christian. They're both from Nigeria. She's not a believer. He meets with them a half a dozen times, and they start getting real open to the gospel. And he says, you've got to get married. It's not right to live together for nine years and not be married. So he goes to their house, marries them. He marries them and preaches the gospel at their little family family wedding. And they're on the brink. It hasn't happened yet, but they're on the brink of becoming Christian. He said, John... How would they have been reached? A Muslim, a nominal Christian, two Nigerians who are about to divorce, or that is about to break up, and who's going to reach them? And then the other one was a young woman who they counseled was killed, stabbed to death, after she had her baby by the boyfriend. And he tells a story here about her transition from dark to light before that happened. So I, the third thing I'm coming out of is my relationships with pro-life people around the country, like like John Enzer, who have inspired me about what this institution, this Amnion, is about. Here's the fourth thing I'm coming out of. Ashley Hope died on Wednesday morning. We did her funeral this morning at 11 o'clock and buried her at noon down at Lakewood. She's 12 hours old. And uh, I didn't plan to do a funeral this morning. I planned to get ready to speak tonight. And so I was up most of last night getting ready for this thing. And Noelle saw my stress. And she said, 
Could it be that the reason God put you and Mike together this morning and tonight is because he wanted you to say the same thing? No new preparation. She's always trying to help me. <laughs> so, because she likes to see me every now and then. And I, I said, well, I don't think so, but I'll think about it. Uh, but as I thought about it, there's one thing I said this morning that I thought maybe I should say tonight. Namely, I, I quoted an article this morning from Marshall Shelley, who lost a two-minute-old baby and a, and a two-year-old girl within three months. And he asked the question to God, why did you design a baby to live for two minutes? With trisomy 13. And the answer he got was, I didn't. I designed this baby to live for eternity. And your problem is that you measure everything in terms of this little vapor's breath called the world or human life or history. And so my the word I bring to you from this morning's funeral is, folks, this chandeliers, chicken, tummy, friends, health, this is not the main thing. This is not the main thing. The main thing is just around the corner. When in the twinkling of an eye, the dead will rise and we will be changed and forever. Now, that's a long time. And compared to that forever, the difference between Ashley's 12 hours and my present 50 years is as nothing compared to eternity. Nothing. So James calls all of life a vapor, not just the 12 hour life. That's what I come out of this morning. Before I turn to the word, just briefly, here's the last thing. It's now nine o'clock. That means it's halfway through the second half of my son's championship soccer game in Blaine. And I really want to be there. That's why my wife's not with me. Now, I accepted this invitation before I knew they'd make it to the championship. Eight months ago. And then they won last night. And I stood in the rain for two hours watching him play. And here's the implication. Keep your promises, even if it hurts. Love people. When you tell them you're going to do something, do it. Be an honest person. Have integrity. God will honor that. Abraham will forgive me. It'll be okay. So now we're close to the issue of love. We're close to the issue of the obstacles to love. It's the right thing for me to be here tonight. But I wanted to be with Abraham. I want to watch that game. Probably the last game he'll play in high school. How do you uh, overcome obstacles to love? Let me quote that article that Janice, uh, so I can find it. Here it is. This is from the summer issue, I think. She wrote, Ministering to women who are living lifestyles which we find hard to understand necessitates that each of our ministry team of office and counseling staff face personal issues of fear, discomfort, and even our prideful attitude. Now, those are articulated obstacles to love. Amnion is about loving both of them. That's what Amnion is about, loving both of them. How do you love? Well, here's where I'm at the word now. 
I'm going to close with just a brief summary of my book, Future Grace. 400-page book in five minutes. Um, Fear is an obstacle to love. Greed is an obstacle to love. Pride is an obstacle to love. Lust is an obstacle to love. Depression is an obstacle to love. Bitterness is an obstacle to love. So how do you overcome all those obstacles? I wrote this book, Future Grace, to put over against a very popular view, another view. The popular view says that the Christian life is motivated by gratitude. You look back at what God has done for you, the cross, in your life yesterday, and in gratitude you find the energy to love and to overcome the bad things that tempt you. I think that's wrong. Um, you cannot run your car on gratitude for yesterday's gas. You can only run your car on new gas and that in you which pumps it. And it isn't gratitude. The gas is grace and pump is faith. And the book is called Living by Faith in Future Grace. Just this morning in my devotions, I was reading Lamentations, no, it was yesterday, reading Lamentations, where it says, uh, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And you will not get through tomorrow without them. If you don't have new mercies for tomorrow, yesterday's mercies, which do drive an engine called gratitude, do not drive the engine of your life called obedience. You know what happens if you try to take past graces, feed it into gratitude and turn gratitude into obedience? It's called works. Gratitude was never designed to do a future thing. Gratitude was always designed to celebrate a past thing. The future thing was designed to be appropriated by faith. Faith in promises. Promises of future grace. So my book is real simple. It's got a simple concept anyway. I don't know how simple it is to read. But a simple concept, namely, the, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And I will not be able to finish this talk in the next few minutes without fresh grace. Let him who serves, 1 Peter 4.11, let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies. There and then a little later there and then a little later there. The strength that God supplies that in everything God may get the glory. I live by banking my hope on next minute's grace, not yesterday's grace. The value of the death of Christ aside from the fact that it covers all my sins, is that it is the foundation and the assurance that tomorrow's grace will be sufficient. Now, I get that from Romans 8.32, which is my life verse, if there is one. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, past tense, past grace, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he then, if he did that, not give us all things with him in the future? The cross is the foundation of future grace. 
So when I see you out there ready to love, and I know that Satan's going to smack you up the side of the head tonight and in the coming years of your life, and cancer is going to come into your life, and wayward kids are going to come into your life, and marital tensions are going to come into your life, and alienation in the community is going to come into your life, and depression and other kinds of mental stresses are going to come into your life. And here I am, and God is calling you to love and be a selfless person that gives your life away for the unborn and for moms and dads. I'm not going to lay that on you without telling you, you can't begin to do it without future grace. If there isn't grace for tomorrow to carry you through that, shut it down, folks. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We are of all people most to be pitied if there's no future grace. Now, let me just give you one verse to show you the dynamic of that. It's in Hebrews um, chapter 10. The situation here in Hebrews 10 is that the early church is in... Uh, crisis of persecution and some of the Christians have already been put in jail. The others face the prospect. Shall we go visit them in jail and jeopardize our own lives and our property or shall we go underground and not do that? It's an issue of love and risk. Where do they get the wherewithal to risk their lives, their property, their family in order to love somebody like that? You listen and see if you hear the answer in Hebrews 10. And I have to do it like this because the way the light's working. Uh, Hebrews 10:32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So some were abused and others then partnered with them, stuck up for them, went to see them. For you had compassion on the prisoners. And listen to this. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That's very strange. And that's love. If, I, if there ever was love, that's a reversal of human values with a vengeance. That's Christianity. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since, here's the reason, here's the foundation, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, and an abiding one. That's future grace. The only way you can joyfully accept the plundering of your property in the service of love is to be absolutely and totally confident that God has something better for you. I call it future grace. And I just plead with you, As you fight the fight of love, make it the fight of faith. Galatians 5, 6. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. Faith reaches out, embraces all that God promises to be for us in Christ. It feels the deep and satisfied treasuring of all of that. And in that satisfied treasuring of all that God promises to be in future grace is free to accept the plundering of its property, the loss of its child, the getting of cancer, the living at a low lifestyle, the going to a distant country, the pouring your life out late at night with a woman in crisis pregnancy. You can do anything by Christ who moment by moment in the future strengthens you if you will understand faith 
as what Hebrews 11.1 1 